Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. Today's passage comes from Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that are, that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Good morning. My name is Darden Kaler. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, as you just heard, we're working our way through the book of Colossians. Um, this passage is, has always been sort of an interesting passage for me because of the part where he says uh, Christ is the substance. Because when you think about substance, you go, well, when I was a kid and I first heard it, it was really pretty much a struggle. What does it mean that something is the substance? I, I, I once heard my father talk about a friend, uh, a good friend of his, who he said was a man of substance. He was a man of substance. And I was young enough that I knew what he was saying was supposed to be a, uh, a good thing, right? It was a compliment. But beyond that, I was, I, was, I don't know, what does it mean when, when someone says, oh, he's a, they're a person of substance. She's a, she's a woman of substance. He's a man of substance. What does that mean? So like kids often do when they, you know, they, well, let me rephrase that. Like kids my age used to do, we look it up in the dictionary, right? <laughs> Uh, now, you should put it on Google, what is a person of substance, and they give you 20,000 answers. But looked it up in the dictionary, came up with these. This is from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Uh, the first, there's three definitions. Uh, the first one is, that which has mass and occupies space and matter. Now, I wasn't entirely certain what that meant, and I certainly didn't know what it, how it applied to my dad's friend. I'm like, that can't be right. He has mass? My dad's saying he has mass? What, what does that mean? So the second one, a material of a certain kind or co- constitution. Now, I understood what material is. Clothes, right? Material. Um, and I understood, I knew, knew about the constitution. I had learned about it in school, so I got that. But again, <laughs> no idea what it meant. How does that apply to the guy that my dad was talking about? Third definition, that which is real or practical in quality or character. Now, that seemed to make a little more sense. I could see how you would, you would apply that to a person and say, well, he's a, he's a real man, but what, what does that mean? 
How is that defined? What does that look like? Didn't really help me understand in the long run. Now, over the years, I've heard that same phrase applied to many, many people. I assume most of us, or at least many of us here, have heard someone referred to as a person of substance. And, and oftentimes, they mean things like this. A person of considerable resources or wealth. So a wealthy person. A, a person who's had much success. They, they've, they've done great things in their job or whatever it might be. A person with great power and influence. Or even a person with a good reputation. And all of those are good, and all of those I can see how they kind of spin into, into what we're talking about today in this passage, or what Paul is talking about in this passage. But they're not perfect. But recently I found an article, uh, it was on LinkedIn actually, and uh, I, I was reading through it, and they were talking about people of substance. What does it mean? It, actually, I think the name of the article was, How to Be a Person of Substance. And I'm like, oh, five simple rules to be a person of substance, and everybody will love you and think you're great. It's not that easy, but you get the idea, right? right? So uh, here's what they said, and I thought this was pretty good. One who adds value to the world, that's what a person of substance is. One who adds value to the world. They create something, whether it's a material thing or a thought or an emotion. They, they work hard and accomplish something. They can be thinkers, they can be doers, but they are authentic and genuine. They are the real deal. All right, now we're getting closer. A person of substance. It's the best definition of a person of substance I've heard. And, and it does apply to what we're talking about, and yet it's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. Remember in verse 17, Paul uses the phrase or uses the word substance and applies it to Jesus. He says that the, the worship traditions of the, of the Colossians and, and the church as a whole, the worship traditions and, and the regulations and all the other things, those things are, are a shadow of, they're a shadow of what is real. But Christ is the substance. Literally, uh, the, the substance belongs to Christ. That's how the ESV says it. In other words, what is true, what is real in those things. So in our worship, what is, what is true and real here, in, in, in the sacrament of communion, in, in the giving of our tithes and offering, in all the practices that we have, what is real and true about those is Christ. Period. The purpose, the point, the goal, the, the, the beginning of those things all come from Jesus. He is the reason, he is the meaning. Literally, substance means body. The word uh, can be translated body. In fact, some translations use that word there instead of the word substance. And, and in this passage, we see the word body used two other times. The same, very same Greek word is used two other times. Uh, once in verse 23, it refers to the human body, and once in verse 19, it refers to the church. It refers to us, God's people, which is Christ's body. The body, we, belong to Christ. That gives a little bit more meaning to what Paul's talking about here. See, a body is something tangible. A body is something real. A body is something we can touch and feel and hear and see and smell and understand. It's, 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 it's right there in front of us. The body belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. The tangible and real essence of our faith is found in him. He is the object of our faith and the basis of our faith. Everything begins and ends with Christ. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning, and I'm the end. The body 
the substance belongs to Christ. It's the basis of our beliefs, and those beliefs are expressed first and foremost here in the body. You see how this is kind of a circular thing? Body has this double meaning here that, 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 that reminds us that, that what we do, our faith and our beliefs and our practices, are all intended to be practiced in the body. Not alone. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. The body is how we're connected. Through the life of the church is how we practice these things that are before us, that, that, that bring us closer to God. And because, the, because he is the substance of our faith, because the substance of our faith is Christ, in other words, we have to trust in his merit, and not in our own doings, not in our own attempts, not in our own works or words or whatever. We trust in him alone to connect us to God. In fact, all other attempts should be rejected. Not because all other attempts are necessarily evil or bad, right? There's nothing wrong with, with, with some of the things that, that the Colossians were doing. There's nothing wrong with some of the rituals and the practices. But, but as a means of connecting to God, they, they are insufficient. They're just a shadow, as Paul says, of what's to come in Jesus. In verse 17, shadow really means illusion. They, they, they show us what's to come. They kind of give us a, a glimpse of what's to come, but they're not real. They're not the thing that we're striving for. That's what the old, old covenant temple sacrifices were all about. They were a shadow of the new covenant sacrifice that Christ made for us. They were a promise of a better sacrifice that would come through Jesus. And because the old covenant pointed to the new covenant in Christ, those sacrifices were inferior. They just weren't sufficient. They weren't as good. But what Christ did was perfect. And so nothing could possibly be better. Those sacrifices were not sufficient, and they could not accomplish what Christ's sacrifice had. And they were made obsolete by his sacrifice. And therefore, the Colossians didn't need to be practicing all those things because Christ had done it for them once for all. And yet the Colossians were trusting in the old covenant ways to deepen their connection to God, to deepen their understanding of God, to deepen their, their relationship with God, you might say. They, in a sense, they preferred the shadow over the substance. Think about it. It's like, it's like, I don't know, it's like uh, choosing a picture of your favorite food over your favorite food. If you're on a diet, that's maybe a good idea. Maybe it's a bad idea. Maybe it tempts you to go out and get your favorite food. But like, Cece, what's your favorite food? Spaghetti. spaghetti. Would you choose to look at a picture of spaghetti over a plate of spaghetti? No. no. Nobody would do that. It's crazy. Adults, think of it like this. Um, think of somebody that you love, that you love and that you, that you miss because you don't get to see them very often. You cherish them and you wish you could be with them more. Now think about it for a second. Would you rather talk to them on the phone or spend time with them in person? If you say, if, if you're, honestly, if you're thinking, I'd rather talk to them on the phone, you might want to consider picking somebody else. Uh, I mean, that's not, the person you're, that's not the person I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person that you really just long to, to be with. I'm talking on the phone while, does anybody remember the old uh, uh, Bell Telephone AT&T thing that said, you know, the next best thing to being there? Yeah, long distance is great and all, but it isn't really the next best thing to being there. Ever since Skype came out, you can see their face now. At least that's a little better. But still, this past year we've spent a lot of time 
looking, looking at people on, on, on the computer, right? Meetings on the computer, really convenient at times. It's it, it helpful to get things, other things done or things done that you might not otherwise get done because you can all sort of be in the same place and, and, and get work done without actually having to be together all the time. The elders did that a lot, a lot, a lot, right? We occasionally still do it, but the fact is, is that the six of us really like being together. And so why on earth would we not? I mean, occasionally, I, when it's an early morning meeting, I don't mind saying, I'd rather not put on clothes yet. So, you know, that, that sort of thing. There's, there's advantages to it, but, but when, when push comes to shove, we like to be together. And so we don't want the substitute. We want the real thing. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's what Paul's talking about here. Because the real thing has substance. It's something that can be touched. It's something that can be... Can be handled and, and, and experienced and, and shared, Paul tes, says to the Colossians that that's, that's how, how it is with Christ. To, to want the shadow of the thing and not the thing is, is missing the point. You're missing the relationship. You're missing the connection. You're missing what Christ intends for you. And you're missing out on the best part of that. Because, because those things, those... those uh, Shadows, uh, you know, they came in the form of, of, of self-imposed rules and, and, and sort of aestheticism, which is suffering, sort of uh, uh, self-denial and, and experiences and emotions. And Paul says those things can't do it. They won't do it. Self-imposed rules simply can't make us right with God. They can only make us think that they're making us right with God. It's tricky. Paul's argument here is not totally linear. Um, in verse 16, he says, uh, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In, in other words, he says, uh, Don't let anyone make rules for you or about, uh, about eating or drinking or anything else or any other Jewish customs. Don't let people do that. And then he goes on. Verses 20 and 23. 323. If, with Christ, you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that are all, all perish as they are used in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, which is self-denial, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The ESV's translation is a little bit wooden here, but I'll paraphrase it for you. When you accepted Christ, you died with him, and you were freed from the old regulations about what to touch and taste and so on. Because those rules are concerned with the things of this world that will disappear, they, they, obeying them doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't get you closer to God. They will not, they cannot save you. They only make you think they're doing that. And still the Colossians... They were acting as if obeying those rules and doing those rituals, that, that somehow that was better. That somehow, because they could, they could do it and they, they could check it off their boxes, they could say, okay, I've done it. I must be closer to God now. And they were tempted. They were tempted and duped to sort of believe the hype of what those things could provide. It, we, we do the same sort of thing, not... Not in exactly the same way, but, but in our culture, you know, we're, we're tempted to believe the hype about things at times, right? 
Advertisements. I, I mean, I haven't really watched network TV in a very long time. We have Hulu, and some of the shows have commercials on them, so I, some, I see some commercials, but I see the same commercials over and over again. It's really, really frustrating. I'd rather see more. But anyway, the point is commercials, commercials. Uh, we see commercials that make promises. Promises about products that, that, that simply cannot be kept by the product. Knives that will never need to be sharpened. Some of you may disagree with me on this. You may find things on there that you, I'll say something and you're going to go, no, 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 I've tried that. Well, you know what? You, for you it might work, but for the next guy it might not. So knives that never need sharpened. Cars that will make us more peaceful. Has everybody seen that commercial? People finding tranquility in the car that they drive. It's so quiet. It's, I, I can forget about the world and I close my eyes and I meditate and I run over somebody in front of me. Uh, clothes that promise a more active lifestyle. You wear these shoes, you wear these shorts, you have a more active lifestyle. I'm tempted by that one, right? Because I, I don't like exercise very much and I'm, I'm often tempted to, to look like I do. Uh, when, I, when I was a youth pastor way back when, I, I actually put a bike rack on the back of my car and, and occasionally I would bike, once or twice a year. Uh, but I left the bike rack on the, bike, on the back of my car because it made me look more athletic. It's kind of cool. Anyway, they're not, again, not the point. Um, cleaning products. Cleaning products. This is the biggest temptation at our household. Cleaning products. Cleaning products that promise to make your life easier. At our household, particularly floor mops, right? I cannot tell you how many floor mops we've owned over the 30-ish years we've been married. String mops, Rag mops, roller mops, sponge mops, spray mops, steam mops, vacuum mops, twist mops, microfiber mops, and something called a wonder mop. I have no idea why it was a wonder mop, but it was a wonder mop. All of these mops we have owned over the years, all of them, all promised certain advantages over other mops. Better absorption, easier to use, deeper cleaning, yada, 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 yada. All promised the advantage and all did certain things well. But none of them lived up to the hype. None of them made floor cleaning any easier. None of them made the floor any more clean necessarily. They just did it differently. Despite what all the advertisements said, despite the hype, they just didn't live up to the promise. It's exactly what the Colossians are struggling with, and for good reason, right? Paul tells us that there's, there's good reason for their temptation to believe these things. He says in verse 23, obeying these rules may seem smart. It may seem smart because they appear to make you more humble, more holy, and closer to God, but they don't really help curb the sinful, selfish desire of the heart. They're not addressing the real issue. The real issue is what's in here. Right? Christ says it's what comes out of our heart that tells us about who we really are. That issue that cannot make us right with God. Any more than Bible study, prayer, fellowship, worship, service, and so on. Now, don't hear me wrong. Those are good things. Those are very good things that you should participate in on a regular basis because it connect, connects us to the body. It connects us to Christ. It connects us to one another. But they're not, the main, they're not the way we get saved. They're all good. But they can't make us right with God. Just as self-inflicted suffering can't make us holy like God, right? 
I mean, you may think for a while, well, who on earth would practice self-inflicted suffering? But, but that's kind of what, that's what Paul's talking about here. So that's what he's getting at when he refers to aestheticism. He's, he's talking about the practice of sort of strict, severe self-denial as a measure of personal holiness, as a means of deepening one's connection to God. The Colossians saw these things as very important because, it, because they felt like this is how we connect to God. We, we suffer like Christ. We sacrifice. We, we bear this burden. We, we, we deny ourselves many of the good things that God intended for us. One of the common practices of asceticism would have been extreme fasting. Uh, Bible scholar Craig Keener explains it this way, that people would deprive themselves of protein and sleep, and, and, and lack of protein and sleep actually causes hallucinations. If you do it enough, you will actually begin to hallucinate. And that became what they were striving for. A hallucination. Just, just an image of God. Just sort of a, I, I want to I think I'm seeing God in this hallucination, but what you really need is a good steak. I mean, you need God too, but God provided the steak. And you're denying yourself something that, 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 that he intends for you. He intends for good. Verse 18, then, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and the worship of angels, and going on about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind. Now, it's important to understand that when he says disqualify here, Paul does not mean, he does not mean that, that, that they could lose their salvation. What he does mean is that they would be missing out on the freedom and the joy and the peace that Christ promises. They would be missing out on the real relationship. They would be missing out on what he does for all who believe in him and trust in him. The freedom to eat and drink the joy of living without the burden of unnecessary restrictions. We, we don't practice those sorts of, thing, those sorts of things in our lives, I, I, I suspect. Most of us don't practice that sort of thing. And yet we do still practice a self-inflicted suffering, most commonly by holding on to guilt and regret for past sins, for past failures, for cruel words that we've spoken to one another when, when we know we should not do for the disappointments and inflicted or incurred by others. When we hold on to such guilt and such pain and such regret, we're denying ourselves. We are keeping ourselves from, from experiencing the joy and the freedom and the peace that Christ totally intends for his body. We're trying to make ourselves more holy because for some reason we, we just connect those things together. Like, well, you know, I, I, I should feel guilty for that. I should always feel guilty for that. But you know what? You shouldn't. Because Christ died for that sin too. It's like trying to cover up rust on an old car with a new coat of paint. In, uh, in high school, I had this really big, yellow 1978 Buick Electra station wagon. I loved that car. I mean, I hated it then. Now I want one. Every so often I'll go through the, the one ads looking for it, and, and you can find them around. And if I thought Belinda would let me buy one, I'd actually spend a couple thousand dollars and buy it just because it was a cool car. I have many fond memories of that car. But it rusted. You know, I grew up in Iowa. In Iowa, they used to use salt on the road like, well, 
like it was concrete. They just throw it on there and let it melt all the, melt all the uh, ice and stuff. And so you drive through that, and it would sit under your car, and it would tear apart the body. It would just make a mess of the body. And so I had this car, and it had, it had rust everywhere. And it wasn't all the way through. It was mostly surface rust. But being a high school kid, I didn't like the way a rusty car looked, so I, just, I would kind of brush it off and with the yellow paint. Well, what happens when you do that? You, you trap the problem behind the paint so that it just rusts more and it spreads and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. That's, that's what self-made religious rules do. They sort of cover up the problem. We feel more holy on the outside while on the inside we're, we're a mess. We give the appearance of being better and yet what's really happening is it's eating at us. And eventually, it's going to bust through the paint. And it'll show itself again. Self-made religious rules, suffering, and so on, can't, can't, can't save us. It can't make us right with God. And neither can, can self-induced experiences. Self-induced experiences can't draw us closer to God. Paul talks about it in verse 18. He talks about visions, right? That's what we were talking about. Um, the Colossians were, were, were trying, as many still do today, uh, we see it a lot in our culture, right? They were trying to connect to God by, by having the experience. Uh, pursuing worship that makes you feel a certain way. I want to come out of worship. I've met dozens upon dozens of people who, who, who say, I want to come out of worship. I want to, I, want to, I want to feel on top of the world. Well, that's great, but not always. That's not the point. That's not the goal. And people will leave churches because, well, it doesn't make me feel the right way. I don't feel it. We look for uh, practices that stir new sensations. Like, um, we'll say, uh, well, I, I, okay, so if you all are runners, if any of you are runners, don't take this the wrong way. But I see it with people that exercise a lot, with people, runners, runners. Not to people that, all people that exercise a lot, but, be, but people that are runners. They'll say, I, go, I run for, the, for the, that ecstatic, that whatever it's called. What happens when you run? Yeah, the runner's high. Thank you. I, I run for the runner's high. It's the same concept. They're looking for that, for that feeling. They're looking for that, um, that sensation, that, that emotion. They're looking for that dopamine or whatever it is that, that makes them feel great. Playing certain music over and over and over again. Self-induced sort of uh, trances, you might say. All ways of elevating the worship experience so that, so that they feel closer to God. They feel closer to God, but, but then maybe, maybe the pastor gets up there and he preaches a great sermon. Maybe it's a sermon that's, that's deep into the gospel and, and convicting, and, and they still go out feeling that, in, in, that, that same way. And that's great. But, but there's also pastors that, that take that experience and just get people to the experience and then just leave them there. You feel good, now go out and get them. But none of the sin in the heart has been addressed. And none of the sacrifice of Christ has been talked about. And so all of that just sits there and, and it never comes together to see what Christ's sacrifice does about the sin in the heart. And it misses the point. It misses the point. That's why Paul told the Colossians not to let such things interfere with their faith. 
They seem inviting. They seem good. They, the arguments of people that, that, that do those things, they're, they're persuasive at times. And yet it's no different than the rules and it's no different than the sufferings. They ultimately just rob us of the peace and joy that Christ intends for us. Now, even if we're not tempted to do those sorts of things, we do substitute things in our lives for the real deal, right? We do substitute things in our lives for the substance of our faith. For example, we often substitute the praise of others for God's approval. We feel like if people tell us we're good, if people tell us we're doing all right, if people tell us we're, you know, whatever, I must be pretty good then. It makes me feel good about myself. We substitute the size of a paycheck and a bank account for security, for peace, for God's blessing. We substitute success of our ventures for value in him. He must value me because look at how successful I am. Look at the great things I've done. We substitute comfort for God's peace. I'm comfortable. My life is comfortable. I don't have a lot of stresses. So I'm peaceful with God, right? I must have peace. But because the real substance of our faith is found in Christ alone, the hope that we have rests in him and him alone. Nothing else, nothing else that we bring to the table can possibly give us that. Nothing else can connect us to him. Nothing that we've obtained, nothing that we do in this world. All the deity of God dwells in Christ, and all the substance of our faith and our belief rests in him alone. And he, then, becomes the definition of a man of substance. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, we thank you that our, our salvation, our hope, our peace, they're not based on anything that we do. They're not based on, on what we do or what we say, not based on what we have or what we feel. We thank you that our relationship with you is based entirely on what Christ has done for us, for his love and in his perfect sacrifice and in the forgiveness that he offers us and by his grace and faith that we accept in him. Help us, Lord, to reject the things that we are tempted to place in your place. Help us to reject the personal comfort, the accumulated wealth, the perceived success, or anything else that we, that we think somehow is, is, is our security. Help us to put our trust in the real thing, your son, the only one who can make us right. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this place. Thank you for our freedoms. Thank you for all the people here, Lord. And for the heart that we share for your son, Jesus, and our desire to see him glorified. Lord, make us a people that, that seek to do that each and every day. And help us to be a people that rests in him alone. We pray all these things in his holy and precious name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.